I understand that there's certain ways I need to get to other audiences, right? And there's certain things that I'm going to have to do differently. And I will say this, that I, because I am always kind of trying different spaces and all of this is very new, even for me, because it hasn't even been that long. It's been, you know, less than four years. I wrote three books in almost three years. And so a lot has happened in my life to very quickly. And so I'm still trying to like figure all this out. But what I will say is I always let my curiosity be larger than my fear. Welcome to the Peyton Pipette Podcast. My name is Jeremy Utley, and it's my job to illuminate the tactics of world-class performers across domains. As a day job, I teach at the Stanford D School, helping students learn what it takes to come up with ideas. But I've realized I need to stay in the classroom learning myself, and this podcast is my classroom. Hey, hey, I'm Marcus Hollinger. I lead marketing and creative at Reach Records and Atlanta-based independent record label. And I'm also co-founder for Portrait Coffee, where we are seeking to reimagine the picture that comes to mind for folks in specialty coffee. I'm so excited to pull up my desk alongside my good friend and fellow learner, Jeremy. And I think y'all are going to love what we have for you this season. We've got some amazing stories on deck, and we can't wait to dive in and learn alongside you. So grab your pipette and your paintbrush, and let's make something beautiful together. All right, Minda Hartz, welcome to the Paint and Pipette podcast. It is so glad to have you here. Happy to be here. Thank you all for inviting me. Did I say it is so glad? I am it so is, glad. Yeah. <laughs> we, we are so glad. We're yeah. so glad to have you. Yeah, definitely. We we want to hear about uh, about your latest book. We know you just wrote a third book, and you happen to mention something right before you hit record that I wanted to dig into, which is it's for young people. And I was curious to know why did you decide to write a book for young folks, and how is it different than how has it been different than writing a book for adults? Thank you for asking. So my latest book is called "You Were More Than Magic: The Black and Brown Girl's Guide to Finding Your Voice," and Previously, I had been working on books, the memo and right within for women of color or anybody who feels like they're on the margins in the workplace. And so I'm talking a lot about workplace issues in the writings that I do. But when I thought back to my 15 year old self, when I thought back to the 14 year old me, what did I need to hear? And I just needed to get back in my DeLorean and go back to the future and provide our young girls the tools they need to show up and take up space now that they don't have to wait till they're 18 or 21 to show up and speak their truth. I wanted them to have the tools they needed right now. And so this book is really special because I know how important our youth are and it's not enough to say they're important or like Whitney said, children are the future if we don't give them the tools to be their best self. And so I'm excited about uh, this book being out in the world. That's amazing. You mentioned a phrase in particular that I wanted to kind of key in on. You said, take their space. Tell us more about what is what does it mean to take one space and why do especially black and brown girls need to have that exhortation in particular? Absolutely. So one of the things, Jeremy, that I did when I wrote You Were More Than Magic, I didn't write it from this place of like, when I was your age, let me tell you all the things. I actually did roundtables across the country with black and brown girls and asked them what their pain points are. What do they want to get across? And I wrote from that perspective. And so one of the things, one of the central things that kept coming up is that they just didn't feel seen. Or when they did speak up, they felt 
dismissed in those sorts of things. And I know how that feels as an adult black woman in the, in the workplace in America, in and outside of my home. And it really broke my heart that they were feeling this way, even at 13 and 15. And so I wanted to encourage them to, you can take up space, however much space you need, but you have to decide how much you want. Don't let anybody box you in, right? And I think sometimes in the black and brown communities, we hear phrases like be seen and not heard and, and some of those kind of narratives. And so I wanted to dismantle some of those survival narratives and give them narratives, new narratives that they can thrive on. I'm, I'm super thankful to even, you know, hear and get exposed to this work that you're doing. It's, you know, Jeremy and I are surprised, both men. And when you talk about those experiences of, of not being seen, I'm wondering, and it'd probably be good for our listeners too, was to, to bring this to life or to bring some specificity to it. Was there a particular story that resonated with you that said that as you narrowed in on this theme, you said, hey, you know what, this is this is it. I've got to, I've got to, I've got to focus on this topic. Yeah. Well, one of the, the, it was kind of my own story too. And theirs. like, I saw myself in them, right. Even though I was much older than them. Uh, when I was younger, my parents moved from Southern California to a rural town in Illinois. Mm-hmm. I moved from a very diverse school and neighborhood to being the only, the only black girl in my class, sometimes the only student of color in my entire school. And so that's very isolating when you're no longer feeling like you're seen or you have to kind of be what your white friends want you to be. And you're still trying to grapple who you want to be as a teenager. And it was very hard. And one of the things that I kept at that time, I couldn't articulate the feeling of isolation. I didn't have the language. Right. And so as I was hearing these young girls talk about wanting to be seen and not even at young age, they were telling me that they didn't want to be deemed as the angry black woman. And I'm like, dang, you already are being exposed to this type of language at 15 and 14 in class. And so for me, it was really important to let them know, you know what, we don't have to subscribe to that mentality and that everything you have is already inside of you. You just need to be reminded of that. And so I wanted to write a book, not just to them, but also to parents and guardians to say, listen to how you talk to these young girls. Think about how they receive the language that you're giving them or how you don't treat them like you might treat your daughters, right, when you show up to school. And so uh, hearing that in their voices and that angst that they're already feeling, I wanted to eliminate some of that so that, again, letting them know that they deserve humanity, dignity, and respect right now. So one of the things that I want to dig into, because these it sounds like these roundtables were a real important part of your own learning journey and inspiration for you. We talk about inspiration a lot here. It's one of the things that we kind of come to often as it relates to creative practice. And certainly a book is a creative project. I mean, it's a massive undertaking. And I'd love to know, how did it come about that you said, you know, the way I want to get inspired this time is I'm going to do roundtables around the country. Because to me, that's like, it's easy just to blow by that. But that is, that's an incredible, I would say an incredible creative tactic. Where did that come from? And how did you go about making sure that it happened so that you filled your reservoir? Yeah, you know, when I, I wrote my first two books, The Memo and Right Within, I did roundtables and interviews with adult women. And so for me, as a writer, as a creative, I never want to really create based off of just my pain points. I also want to find out what other pain, what other people's pain points are too right, to be able to provide them tools to eliminate some of these, this pain or angst that they're feeling. And so, again, I have been removed as a teenager for quite some time, right? When we were growing up, we, we did have issues that we were dealing with, but we didn't have TikTok, we didn't have social media the way we have now. And so I didn't want to 
write again from, oh, when I was your age and I, you know, I, I wanted to write from where they sit, right? So that they could see me as an ally. They could see me as a big sister. Like I didn't want to come off as like this parent telling them what to do. And so I was very, I was more careful and intentional with this book than I was my other books because I knew if I get this right, then they can show up in the workplace 10 times better than many of us have been able to. And so it was really important for me to handle this book with lots of care. And when you say you don't just want to create from your own pain points, why is that? And how do you balance, right? Because you have your voice, you have your experience and you're a steward of that. How do you, how do you think about balancing the pain you've experienced or the needs you've, I don't mean pain necessarily, but the needs you've experienced and wanting to represent that, but then also say, it's not just about my own experience. I want to learn about others too. How do you think about weaving those two things together? Yeah. Again, when I was writing the outline for the book, I said, okay, let me do the round tables. Here are some things that I think teenagers experience because being a teenager, we all had the, the likability factor, right? How to make friends, all those sorts of things. Those are neutral regardless of race or age or demographic. But I also wanted to write it in a way where, okay, if let's say making friends is a hard thing for teenagers, right? Because you want to be liked so much. And sometimes you'll forfeit your own values just to get a seat at the lunch table, right? And so I wanted to grapple with that, but I didn't want to just write from, you know, choose your friends wisely, but I wanted to hear them talk about friendship. And then from there, I could write my stories like, oh, I remember when I was 16 and I had this friend named Candy and God, I would do anything to hang out with Candy, right? (laughs) Even if that meant whatever, whatever. And, and so I started to reflect on my own experiences. And then the other piece that makes You Are More Than Magic really special is that when I tell my stories, then I have this area in the book called Quick Cues, where I ask them to reflect on some of their experiences so that we're not just moving along. That was a fun story to read, but let's reflect on some of the situations in your friend group right now. And I do that in every chapter. Where did you learn your craft? I mean, to me, some of the stuff that you're talking about is, I mean, truly it's, it's exceptional writing tactic strategy. Who are you learning from to, to inform how you think about crafting a work of art like this? Yeah, I, I, I didn't see myself, Jeremy and Marcus, as an artist before I became an author, but it really is a creative process. I have whiteboards in my room. I have lots of paper and I really do think about the art and I throw ideas on the papers that I'm writing on my wall and those sorts of things. And again, because especially for black women authors to get traditional publishing deals, it comes few and far between when it comes to writing books like this. And so for me, I realized that I would, I knew that I would be opening up the door for a lot of new uh, women of color authors. And so I wanted to handle it very much with care. And I wanted to talk in a way that it wasn't like, five points to do this. And then you do that. I wanted it to be very conversational because the one thing that I hear in the workplace often is bring your authentic self to work. So that's what I did to my writing process. I bring music, I bring pop culture. I bring those pieces of myself to where we're like having a slumber party. We're chopping it up uh, on my couch and we're having real life conversation. That's my style. I didn't want to mimic anybody else. And then other inspirations are people like Toni Morrison. She wrote from the black gaze, not anything else, right? And I'm very apologetic, unapologetic about who I write for. I engage other readers. I want other people to read it, but my central focus is taking care and making sure that black and brown girls have a soft place to land. 
That is, that's awesome. Shout out to Tony Morrison there for that. I'm curious, because you said prior to your writing, you really didn't consider yourself an artist, which that's, that's, you know, I'm sure a lot of people kind of wrestle or grapple with that. What changed about your perspective on what it actually means to be an artist or to, to, to comfortably perform art through writing? Yeah, that's a great question, Marcus. For me, I realized that I was an artist because I was inspiring other people by my work. Whenever we're able to inspire creativity or have people think differently or modify how they once seen a certain perspective, right? That's art. That's inspiration, right? You know, the first time that I went to a museum and I noticed a couple years, maybe about 10 years ago, I saw a Basquiat exhibit. And, you know, when you see just different forms of art, you're inspired in different ways, you know, and that's what my writing and, and research and even in my public speaking, I want to inspire people and any type of art that any type of format that inspires other people i think you could call yourself an artist what was the moment you, you said I, I i really resonated with that comment as well and i can relate in a lot of ways i didn't think of myself as an artist what was the moment you realized you were can you think of the specific moment i would say probably my first book the memo what women of color need to know to secure a seat at the table when i first got my book deal i was told that well at the time, there were five major publishers when I got a book deal, and four of them told me that there was no no audience for your book, that this book will never do well. Mm. And I grappled with that because I had been a Black woman in the workplace for 15 years in corporate America, and I know that there's an audience, right? But when you have certain faces and, and people at tables that don't understand your lived experience, they will create this narrative that there's no audience for you. Right. And so once my book did become a bestseller and still is a bestselling book, I realized, wow, you know, people were reaching out to me saying that I thought I was the only one. I thought I was suffering in silence. And that's when I realized the power of words, the power to inspire that people were having the courage to go and have conversations with their managers that they didn't. They were learning how to take up space, how to create boundaries. And again, I think any of our work, if we can inspire people to have to action then you have succeeded. Rather, you become a best-selling artist or not. If you inspire somebody uh, to do something differently, to think a little bit differently, and I realized that my words were powerful, and I realized that my voice was tied to somebody else's freedom, and that's why I continue to do the, the artistry that I do. Well, that, that's that's awesome, and I really appreciate that resilience. I definitely don't want to pass over that. You were told by most of, most of the publishers going at the time that you didn't have an audience for what you were trying to, what you were trying to put out there. What was that, what was that, that specific moment where you said, okay, you know what, like, I'm going to overcome that comment. I'm going to, I'm going to push past that to get, to get to the process of writing this book. It was, I won't lie and say that I wasn't discouraged, right? Because, and to be fair, there hadn't been any books like this out on the market by a major publisher. So they didn't think that it could sell. Right. And I wasn't famous. I'm not famous. And so they layered that on that this would just be really hard to do. And, but what I realized was I have a voice. I just have to figure out how I want to use it with or without them. Right? I knew yeah. that this art needed to happen. I'm glad that I did find a publisher that was willing to take the chance. But I just knew that somebody needed to hear it. And I think every artist comes up against opposition, right? The ops. Yeah. You're going to have your ops. Yeah. <laughs> and and, 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 and right. it's up to us to dismantle yeah. that. It's up to us to keep moving forward. And so for me, I, I just knew that people needed to get the memo and I wasn't going to stop 
until I found it. And I, the one thing as an artist, I think all of us are creatives, right? Um, what's for you won't miss you. And so I just kept telling myself that what's for me won't miss me. So whatever I'm supposed to be doing, there will be space created for that. And, and I, I love that you said that specifically, and I know that, that, that that's one of the main, you actually write about this. I've seen it in a few of your books. What was it like? What, what specifically, what activities did you engage to say, I'm going to find my voice? What, you know, when we think about singers, they go, they go and they say, all right, I'm going to get with a vocal coach, you know, or they go get with songwriters that make them feel comfortable and get in an environment where, you know, the authenticity can flow. What was that like for you as a writer? Yeah, well, what a lot of people who may not know who come to my books or learning maybe about me for the first time today is before I became a best-selling author of three books, I had a blog, right? I had a blog for five <laughs> years. <laughs> and I had a lot of time to work out some of my creativity to, to find my voice. Mm. And I started my blog in 2015. And every Monday I would put out this, what I called the weekly memo. Had, had you have told me in 2015 that I would have put out, I would do this content every Monday about what I was experiencing in the workplace, that sort of thing. And that eventually those blogs would turn into my first published book. I would not have believed you. Right. But what I, what we do as artists is you take control of what you can take control over. I had access to the internet. I had access to MailChimp. I had access to Squarespace. I leveraged what resources and tools were available to me. And I just kept doing what I had control over, telling my story, figuring out what my voice was. And I found that people loved the vulnerability and the authenticity that I bring to my, to my art. And I just continued to hone in on that. I love that. How did you get, I mean, I just want to dig into that because that is such a, it's so beautiful and very few people appreciate the work, the toil that goes in before somebody's well-known. You know, I, I watched this is a totally different kind of a subject, but, I'll, but Marcus and I were talking about it the other day, but Mr. Beast, who's a YouTuber, I don't know if you know Mr. Beast, but he's, he's got like 200 million followers. Okay. He's the, he's the biggest YouTuber. He had an wow. interview recently and he talked about how for like eight years, he never made a dollar a day on YouTube, but he just kept at it. He kept at it. And now he's like this huge phenomenon. People are like, how do I become like Mr. Beast? And the question is, you willing to toil away in obscurity for eight years? You know, how do I become like men to heart? You willing to toil away in obscurity for five years? It's like, nobody wants that. They want the memo, but they don't want, they don't want to release the, the, the weekly memo. Right. And I would mm. love to know, like, how do you, how did you get feedback? I mean, cause going back to Marcus's question about finding your voice, you mentioned you were putting stuff out there. You're using MailChimp. How did you know, when something really resonated, how did you know when you missed? Was it like checking in internally? Was it checking in with your subscribers? What what was that? And maybe give us an example, like of a time that it really worked or a time that it really didn't work, just so we can have like practical. Yeah, I really love that you said people aren't willing to do the weekly memo first before they get to the memo. And that's the, the honest to God truth. <laughs> you know that a lot of people are not willing to do that early as grunt work, if you will, or or the grit that's associated with that. But when I first started my newsletter, it, you know, it was me and friends and family as a subscriber base, you know, it was very bare bones. And so this was an opportunity for me just to say, you know what, what I have control over, here are some of the things that I'm experiencing in my current job. Let me talk about what it's like to be a black woman, being a woman of color in the workplace. And I just chose different topics. So for one, salary negotiation. 
right? I talked about mean girls in the office. So every week, and then I'd add tools for how you overcome these things, right? And not just, so what was me? I have these mean coworkers, but what can you do <laughs> to have conversations about it? And it, over time, I'd say maybe about a year of just writing this content and doing it. Then finally, as people started to find the newsletter, they would reach out to me and say, you know what? I needed that salary negotiation advice. I needed that mean girl. I got this mean girl. My, my mean girl in my books, I call her Carrie. And people would start messaging me. I got a Carrie too, right? And so those were the things that started That's to great. let me know this way, right? <laughs> or that way. And by the time I did get a book deal, I went back on all the years of memos I had written. And I started to look at the analytics to say, oh, these were the ones that really mm. stood out to people. This was the ones that they shared frequently. And that's how I built my chapters off of those things. I'm, I'm really curious about in that, that span, you, you were writing this blog for years back in 2015. I'm really curious about at, at some point your, your lived experiences, you know, you, you, you could, the, the well could, could potentially run dry. What was your process like for getting ideas to stay consistent? Well, bitter, bittersweet, Marcus, was that uh, between 2015 and then we went into the political issues that we had with a, with a president and those mm. sorts of things. So race was at the top of the ticket in a lot of and there was a lot of different things happening inside of the workplace and lawsuits and those sorts of things. So I could get on Twitter at any given time and see people tweeting about things that were going on or in the taking it from the headlines and saying, oh, well. For example, every year there's um, equal pay day, right? And so then I would say, well, what about equal pay day for black women? And I'd start writing about that, how it's different mm -hmm. than, than white wow. women. And I wow. just started to leverage those opportunities that I saw to say, not all women experience the workplace the same. Let's talk about intersectionality, right? And that's where I started to carve out my lane because back then nobody wanted to have that conversation as much as we're talking about it now. And, and I'm grateful that I planted those seeds early because now, even in the last four months, there's been so many books written about women of color in the workplace. And I like to think that it was cracking that door open saying, this is important work so that it could usher in a next group of authors to be able to share their stories. No, that's awesome. I was, I was listening to, I think I was listening to an interview, Kevin Lyles, he's a music entrepreneur. And he was talking about uh, he's had this great success and, you know, the golden ages of hip hop and things. He was a pioneer on the forefront of it. And now he's still finding relevancy in music. And one of the things that he said was, well, he, he gave his method for staying inspired and doing something new. I'm, I'm curious. You had you had the blog era. Now you put out these three books. I'm very curious now what have your habits changed? from that time and how are you now keeping a diet of fresh inspiration and, and being able to respond, finding new things to respond to new material? That's a, a great question because I often say, how can I keep it fresh, right? How can I keep it relevant? And I'm always thinking about that. And one of the things that I just did recently was create a production company called the Queen of Hearts Productions, because now I want to take my books and different things and start to build content and video and documentaries around this. So to continue to be an artist, but using all of the different methods and, and content that I have in my books and giving it to a new artist, because if you're a reader, then you may come to this or you've been experiencing a lot of issues inside the workplace. So you find my books, but let's say you're 
you don't know I exist. You don't know this work exists, but you come through music or you come through a docu-series. And so I just put out my first audio play uh, for Women's History Month called The Memo Monologues. I took it and reimagined it. And so I, I do think that that is so important for artists to be able to reimagine your work and make it relevant to a uh, current generation. Was there ever a time that you felt you wondered, am I doing this right? And what did you do to overcome those fears or doubts? Oh, yeah. I mean, for five years writing the blog or four years, I was like, is anybody even reading this? <laughs> you know, like, or is this just therapy for me? You know, I, I wasn't sure what it was. And even because I didn't have a blueprint and because there wasn't anybody kind of moving the way I was in this space and I was kind of opening up a new genre of writing, I was nervous and I started to kind of think about, well, do I have what it takes to be able to do this? And it was nice to kind of not people know you and just kind of write this thing. And then do I really want to be public facing and be a voice for those who haven't yet found their voice? And then I realized that it was bigger than me. You know, I could not put the genie back in the bottle anymore. I had to make the workplace better than I found it. And, you know, now it's, I still sometimes question like, I'm not sure what I'm doing, but I just continue. There was something about my early stages that I continue to use that recipe, right? Because just like, you know, my dad, one of the things I love about him is he is so amazing at cooking. And one of the things that people love coming to our home is, is to get his fried chicken and his, and his homemade French fries, right? We like the recipe. That's what we come back home for to his house. That's what people, when they come to town, they're like, I need your chicken and your fries, right? And so that's the thing that people like. They want that taste. And so for me, I keep it all the way 100 and all the way authentic because that's what people fell in love with from the get-go, right? And that's what I continue to, to, to use that recipe. The, the modality might change, but the recipe is still the same. I, I love that. I was, I was listening to a, a podcast, Trapital, this guy, Dan Runcy, who's San Francisco based, Jeremy. The economist there was referencing uh, Jungle Brothers lyric where he says, it's all about getting the music across without crossing over. And I hear that same thing in your story. And I'm curious in terms of, you know, obviously he was talking about that in the context of hip hop, but I'm curious in, in, in your situation and keeping the recipe the same, uh, remaining authentic, you're, but you're in a new space now with film, television, things like that. How are you overcoming the learning curve to adapting your material? Or, and maybe there, is there a specific thing right now that you're, that you're grinding your axe on to get, to get more sharp at? Yes. And I think that's like, because I am a business major, first and foremost, I think very business minded. And so when I think about past companies, I'll use BlackBerry, for example, I loved BlackBerry, right? You couldn't tell me nothing about a BBM message. Right? Shout, <laughs> like, shout, shout out to the Drake days. Come on, come on. Take it back. I love it. Yeah, I loved it. Okay, you couldn't tell me anything different. But you think about them, you think about Kodak. They were on the cutting edge of, of innovation. And then somewhere along the lines, it just kind of didn't like connect to the next piece of the puzzle. And so I don't want to be left in my BBMs, right? I don't want to be left... On, on, on that. And so I constantly am thinking, how do I stay fresh? How do I stay relevant? How do I continue to be a thought leader in this space? And actually two years ago, knowing that at some point I wanted to get into film and TV, I started taking screenwriting classes at UCLA. 
And nice. that was part of it. I want to be able to come to the table having having some understanding of how things work. And so for me, and producing certain things on the side. And so when I think about what this is, I'm I'm constantly, how do I continue to be a leader where people are looking to me, even if my books, you know, start, hopefully they'll be evergreen in some way, shape or form, but they can, you can see the trajectory. And I know people are looking at my model too. And I want to encourage them to continue to stay relevant. Like you can't always just hold on to what got you there in, you know, 1988, it might still help, but think about how much, <laughs> how much better and how much more innovative you can be if you continue to follow the trends. Yeah. I, I love that. And is there is there anything that you've noticed in the in that process that you say I have to unlearn? Have you ever have you ever said I have to unlearn this BBM tactic <laughs> in order to get good at this? And yes. and could you tell us what what one of those things might have been? Well, right now I'm grappling with this, Marcus. I have not done it yet, but because we're having the conversation, uh, one of the things that people have told me, you know, because you're working in a young adult space right now with this book, you need to get on TikTok. I'm like, oh. <laughs> That's scary. That's scary. <laughs> I love it. I haven't crossed over. I've been trying to look for some TikTokers that I could pay to do it, but I'm like, I don't know if that's where I want to be. But I understand that there's certain ways I need to get to other audiences, right? And there's certain things that I'm going to have to do differently. And I will say this, that I, because I am always kind of trying different spaces and all of this is very new, even for me, because it hasn't even been that long. It's been, you know, less than four years. I wrote three books in almost three years. And so a lot has happened in my life to very quickly. And so I'm still trying to like figure all this out. But what I will say is I always let my curiosity be larger than my fear. So if I'm curious about something, I think you know, I won't let my fear get in the way of it. And I'll continue to hone in, read the books, go to workshops, always invest in myself so that I can be a leader. Because I think part of being a leader is being flexible, evolving, right? I don't want to have the same mentality that I had when I wrote those blogs in 2015. I want some evolution to happen. And I think that that's important in business. There's awesome. so many sound bites here, Minda, that are just like, you're bars. speaking to our hearts, bars, dropping bars. Tell us about a recent, you know, I think in terms of epiphany, realization, aha, you know, breakthrough. Is there some, what's the last time you felt like, you know, like a, like in the matrix, like I know Kung Fu, like you just, what? <laughs> and, and and tell us about that moment and how, and then, and maybe tell us how you got there. I feel like I have the, those moments like once a day, like, oh my God, I can't believe this is going on. But I, what I will say is this, I think even writing my second book, Right Within, when I wrote the memo, the first first book, I thought about, okay, what are the rules of engagement that women of color need to, to, to know to you know secure their seat or feel comfortable in a, in a workplace when they're the only or one of few? But then as I started to think about that book, I thought it was the only book I was going to write. I said, you know, this is it. This is where I lay, lay my head. I'm fine. But what I realized was how important healthy mindset is, how important are passing on new tools to the next generation instead of passing on old survival tools. And once I had that epiphany about survival tools versus tools to thrive, my work and my innovation just sort of opened up to me in a new way. And that's how I was able to think about right within. You're on mute. You're on mute, Marcus. Oh, I was saying, okay. I was going to say. <laughs> Wait, uh, like for those, my, for those of mouth. you listening, for those of you listening right now, Marcus is gesticulating wildly, speaking quickly, and neither Minda or I could hear him. <laughs> uh, 
my mind and my and my mouth was moving so faster than my hands could unmute. That's just how again with the bars, but we gotta dive in on that. Can you please really quickly for, for our sake and for our listeners' sake, can you tell us or give us an example of difference between a survival and like a, a thriving? I think that was I think that was the word that you used. Like give us one example of what the difference between those two things are. Yes. One of the things that I noticed is that when we are one of you or one of the only, or in any situation, sometimes we're just functioning in survival. How do I just keep from drowning in a situation that I'm in instead of necessarily learning how to swim, how to rise above it, right? And so I think for people of color in particular in the workplace, oftentimes we're just told, work really hard, keep your head down, don't rock the boat. So we're just trying to figure out how to get to five o'clock. That's like the goal, right? And do it well. But what would it look like if we actually passed on tools to ourselves and to the next generation on how to thrive? If something isn't working for you in the workplace, what would it look like to have a conversation with your manager or with a colleague to create boundaries, right? That we don't have to keep surviving in every environment that we're in, that we actually could have a life of freedom, right? You think about our ancestors. They never got to understand and experience true freedom, but we are in a space where we can. And we can use our voice in ways that they weren't able to before. So let's not participate in our own oppression. Let's switch the gears. Let's let's use our voices in the ways that we can. And so for me, when I that my epiphany was in 2020, right after George Floyd, I started to think of we can't just survive anymore. We got to thrive. And what are those tools that we need to do that? And as I think about my work and my art now, it's all about the thrive. It's all about the freedom, no longer feeling confined by anything. Man, there's too much here. Last question, and then we should probably we should probably let you go so that we can wrap and be respectful of your time. But last question, what do you do when you need inspiration? I realize you got the roundtables, but what are your go-to hacks or tips or tricks to, to get fresh? I'm going to let you in on a, a big secret, and it's really music. I know Marcus will appreciate that. I am... I yeah. I quote this in my bio all the time. I am a lover of grits and rap lyrics. It's rap lyrics that keep me inspired. I listen to, there's nothing that I can't do. I have to listen to rap music before I write. I have to listen to it in between. And that's how I get my inspiration. It was what got me through corporate America on those days where I wanted to like throw the stapler across the room. (laughs) It was the thing that really just grounds me. And I I will say a line that I lean into for inspiration is by Jay-Z is, I rather die enormous than live dormant. And I think about how I want to do things and I would rather do it big and make moves than just play on the sidelines and watch other people do it. And on that note, she drops the mic with the blueprint reference. Can I live? Wow. I love it. I love it. Minda, this is an incredible, uh, incredibly insightful and inspiring conversation. Thank you so much for making the time to talk with us today. We can't wait to share your gems with, with our listeners. So thanks for making the time. Thank you so much. Awesome.